So the story is told about the Civil War. The setting is in Ohio. The Union, of course, is fighting against the Confederates. And in this skirmish, the captain realizes that one of his uh, army officers has been shot in the arm, and he tells him, he says, give me your gun and go to the back of the line, go to the back of the battle where you can be out of the skirmish. And so the guy runs to the back, and he, when he runs to the back, he realizes that the battle is being fought on that front. So he runs over to the west, and he finds that the battle is being fought over there, and so he decides to get out of there, and he runs east, and he realizes the battle's over there as well. And so he goes back to his commanding commander-in-chief, and he says, you know what? Give me my gun back. Because this guy ain't going to the rear of the war. And isn't that true how sometimes we can feel caught in a battle? We're in the crosshairs of Satan himself. And even though you may be a Christian and you're wounded, there, is, there can sometimes feel like there is no rest and the battle is everywhere. Now last week I, we talked about the battle that takes place in the heart of the unbeliever. We, we looked at Paul's life in Romans 7 as Paul kind of uses his life background, his life setting, as the term I used, in order to give us this picture of that battle of the, the unbeliever caught up in the control of sin. And even though, like Paul, he delighted, his mind delighted in the law, he just couldn't do it. You see, the mind is both the, that center that desires things, but it's also that center for deciding things. The heart is that place where we believe and we surrender and give to. And in the mind, Paul is saying, I'm desiring this, but I can't do it. I can't make this decision. And every time I make this decision, it's like the wrong one. And so he is bound in serving the law, and yet... He was bound to sin as well. And as we looked at, he was both under law and he was under sin. And what a horrible recipe for following Jesus. What a horrible recipe, really, because he was attacking Jesus for following God. And it says in Romans 5, excuse me, Romans 8, verse 8, it says, those controlled by the sinful nature or the flesh, cannot please God. Now it says here in chapter 7, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord in response to who will rescue me from this body of death. And then he says, so then. Now you remember that that's like a conclusion. Therefore, it can be also translated, so then I myself in my mind am a, sir, am a slave to serve the law of God which is a bad thing. We've been set free from the law of God. That is its requirements to somehow please him because only Christ could do that. We never can by our good works. He says, but on the other hand, in the, in the flesh, the sinful nature, I serve as a slave to the law of sin. And then he goes on and he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, my own personal testimony is somewhat akin to Paul's. I grew up in the church, and at about age 14, I identified with this struggle in which I really wanted to please God, but I realized that I was controlled by this force, if you will, the law of sin, and I could not please him. And of course, those who are in the flesh, Paul tells us in chapter 8, you, you can't. Good luck trying, but you can't. And there is this internal dilemma, and Paul comes to this conclusion in verse 25, I am both under law, and I am under sin, and I am lost. And then he immediately makes another conclusion. Now stepping back from this life setting, personal life setting, his testimony really, is this principle of those who try to live under law and under sin. You cannot do it. And he says, therefore, now. 
The conclusion of his life as a sinner was chapter 7, verse 25. The conclusion, however, that he now transitions to of one who is now birthed in the Spirit, he says this, therefore now, not then, but now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How many of you this morning are in Christ Jesus. That is, you believe in Jesus Christ. And it says the good news is that he sent the law of the power, excuse me, the law of the spirit of life, and he set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, what is all of law, law, law? What is he talking about? Because he uses law in in two slightly different ways, one of which he is referring to the law of God, and that's written down. I mean, you you look in your Bible, you can look back in, in Exodus 20, and you can come across the Ten Commandments. That's the law of God. And then you have this law or this principle or controlling power of sin that he's referring to. So in my mind, I'm serving as a slave, the law of God, but In my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. And this law is a controlling power. In the the Declaration of Independence, it talks about the laws of God and of nature. The laws of God written down, the laws of nature, which would be written, the laws of God written on our heart, but also Just simple principles of God's creation, such as the law of gravity. It is a controlling force. If you don't believe me, try stepping off a three-story building and see what that does to you. It will control you. Trust me. These laws set in nature controls. The law of sin controls. And if we are lost, if we are outside of Christ and his help, the law of sin will control us. But the Bible says, that the law or this spiritual powerful principle that controls of the spirit of life has set me free. Here is our dilemma, church. And I concluded on this matter and I shared a story with you in communion that I'm now going to share again for those who were not here with us last week. And so that way it's also recorded because we don't record communion. But what do we do as believers? Those who are now in Christ Jesus, and there's no condemnation, but we still feel this tug and this battle, this skirmish, this conflict within. The spirit of life has set me free, but sometimes sin still can get the better of me. What is going on? I thought I was set free from that. Isn't that what Romans 8, 2 says? The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The spirit brings life. Sin brings what? Death. Death. Now, General Wainwright in 1940 was left as the commander of the armed forces, the Allied forces in the Philippines. General Douglas MacArthur had left with the famous I'll be back, and he left. General Wainwright is in charge within five months. The Japanese had overrun the island, and consequently, he was told by his commanders to surrender. General Wainwright did not want to, but he was a man under command, and so he did. Here's why he didn't want to. The Japanese despise those who surrender. When General Wainwright was captured and all of his men, and their lives were spared, they were placed in a Japanese prison camp and harshly treated. Not fed properly, beaten, considerably beaten. If you've ever seen World War II movies in Japanese prison camps, you'd understand. For five years, he is enduring this trial. Highest ranking commander that was captured in World War II. He thought for sure that he was despised in America. Five years later, August 14th, 
the Japanese surrender. For five days, General Wainwright lived as if he was a prisoner. On August 19th, he heard, as the story goes, from someone on the other side of the fence that the Japanese had surrendered. Equipped with that one truth, the Japanese have surrendered. He marched himself, emaciated, bruises, cuts, beaten, in deplorable condition, into the commandant's office and said, your commander-in-chief has surrendered to my commander-in-chief, and I am in charge now. And the commandant laid down his weapon, and General Wainwright took charge. Equipped with that one truth, here's my question, what was life like for him for those five days? Because for many of us, that's where we live. The truth is, Japan had surrendered. He was a free man. But for five days, he acted like a prisoner. Was he a prisoner or was he free, church? He was free. Five days later, when he heard this truth, he now exercised that truth that he was free and he took charge. The commandant did not argue with him. The commandant didn't pull out his gun and shoot him. The commandant, according to the law of war, laid his gun down and said, you're right, you're now in charge. And you see, this is what will happen when we recognize the truths of God's word, especially here in Romans. There's several more in Romans 8. When we apprehend these truths, we can walk in them. Now, it may not feel like it. I mean, he was free. General Wainwright was free for five days. But did he feel like he was free? No, he did not. Absolutely, he felt just like a prisoner. But was he free? That's the truth. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Now, I tell you what, he certainly felt free when he stepped in with the authority that he had as a general into the commandant's office and commanded him to surrender. And there was no argument at the table there. The commandant complied immediately. The story also goes, whether this is true or not, I'm not sure, but that the commandant had found out earlier that the war was ended and refused to tell General Wainwright. I want to tell you this right now, that today, Satan wants to do everything he can to keep you from understanding and apprehending the truth. Because if he can keep you in the darkness, so to speak, you will continue to walk as a prisoner, a prisoner of sin. And so, what we then struggle with is this very truth of us being freed from sin. Because there are times in which we feel like a prisoner of sin. My challenge to you is believe the truth. Believe the truth. How then do we align our reality? That is that we still sin. With the truth, that is, that we have been set free from sin's power. You know, when the Allied forces took Iraq, the people of Iraq were free. But we all know that there were still pockets of resistance throughout Iraq that continued and continued to create issues. And so as a Christian, we can have these pockets of issues. We call them sin issues. They may be with lust or anger or pride or worry, fears. And when we do not seek to implement these truths and embrace them and apply what we're going to learn to this morning, we can feel like a prisoner, like General Wainwright for those five days in the prison camp. Now, in way of review, Romans 6, there were three principles that we grasped. When we were talking about the old man, that's not your dad, by the way, your old man, the old you, the old Mike Curtis died when I trusted in Jesus Christ. That is a truth. Number one, we needed to know this truth. Number two, we needed to do the math so to speak. We needed to look at the account and reconcile it and say, this is 
where my present reality is, but this is what the Word of God says that I am. This is who it says I am in Christ, and I need to reconcile this. And I use the illustration of a checkbook in which I can be wrestling with certain sins, and God says, but Mike, hello? Even though your checkbook says this is how much you have, when you, re- when you received at the end of the month the bank statement, it said you have this much. Mike, you've got so much more money in your account because you made an error. You subtracted instead of added, and consequently, you have much more money. Which one are you going to trust? Which, how are you going to determine your financial decisions in life? Now, I do it by my checkbook register. I look at it, and that's how much it says I have. That's how much I believe I have, and that's how much I act on. And if I, if, I make a decision, if I need to make a decision that requires this much money, and my bank account says I don't have it, I don't do it. But what if? What if? According to the bank's statement, it says I really have much more. Whoa. I can help this brother out with that little bit of extra money. I didn't realize I could. Wow, I can bless my wife with a a, a nice birthday gift when I thought I was just going to have to give her, you know, um, Reese's Cups. She loves Reese's Cups. But now I can bless her with a car. No, okay, maybe not a car. (laughs) She's thinking, yeah, great. (laughs) Write that one down. Wish list. We can make our decisions in life, as we wrestle with sin issues based on where we think we are, our reality, my checkbook. But God says, wait a second, Mike, do the math. This is the truth. You are not a prisoner. As soon as General Wainwright found out you are not a prisoner, he no longer acted like one. He acted like a what? A general. And he marched into the commandant's office and said, hey, buddy, It's over for you. I'm now in charge. And this is what we need to do in our Christian lives. You are not a prisoner. You have been set free by the spirit of life. And then lastly, I mean, how do we even do this thing? We realized, Paul tells us in Romans 6, offer yourselves to God. And in that word, offer, we discover this concept of faith and surrender. I mean, isn't that what it means to become a living sacrifice? You surrender. You lay it down on the altar. You say, you know what? This is not about me. This is about you, God, and your reign in my life, and I lay it all down for you. My life is poured out like a drink offering for you, God, for your kingdom, your purposes, not me, because this life isn't about me. It is all about you, Jesus. So we, I think we grasped some of these principles and this concept of surrendering every area to God. And it, it says if we were to skip over there, do that with me, to Romans 10, very well known, two verses in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, that says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. You see, it's just too easy to think that you have apprehended truth, but you really haven't. See, I thought I had apprehended truth about who Jesus was. I could quote you the Apostles' Creed because we said that in church every Sunday morning. But I was unsaved. I was unredeemed. I was still outside of Christ. I was still lost in my sin. You see, when you confess it, you are basically acting upon that faith. And you are, you, you, you are forcing yourself to move belief in a truth to a belief in a person and a commitment. Can I be honest with you? There are some times in which I, my wife says, hey, can you do such and such? And instead of saying, sure, I'll say, well, let me see. In other words, no promises here. 
I mean, if I can get around to it, I will, but no promises here because now she can't call me on the carpet. And guess what? Also is the truth. I'm not committed to it. And so for that reason, God is saying, hey, I want to hear a commitment here. Jesus is Lord. In essence, Jesus is my Lord. I am committed to you. I pledge my allegiance to you. So belief takes place in the heart. And it is not just belief in a truth. It is belief in a person. And when that happens, we confess it, church. And wherefore, we take a stand of commitment to Jesus Christ. So the heart believes. And then with our mouth, speaking from our mind, remember the mind desires and it chooses, I now declare this is my possession. This is where I stand. This is who I will follow. And we make that choice, that heart surrender, that vocalized choice, I will follow Jesus. So now we come to Romans chapter 8. And I, and, and I mentioned this passage in Romans 10 because this isn't just for salvation, even though that's the, the application here that Paul brings. But this is the way life is for the rest of our lives. God, the gospel is not just to convert you. It is to live by every day of your life. And that is what we're discovering here in the book of Romans. You know, the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save sinners such as me, of whom Paul says, I am the worst. It's not just to rescue me and save me. It is to guide me every day of my life. And so when I'm saying believe and confess, I am saying that is not just for salvation. I am saying that is for the rest of your life. I'm believing in my heart and I am confessing this is truth and this is where I'm going. It vocalizes a commitment. It's like planting the flag in the ground. I will not be moved. It is General Wainwright's not just hearing and believing, oh, I'm free, and hanging out by the fence, but marching himself and vocally saying, your commander-in-chief has surrendered to my commander-in-chief, so I'm in charge now. And that is what we must do. It's acting on our faith. It's speaking it. Now, in Romans chapter 8, he continues on. Let's, let's look at verses 5 through 9 and verses 12 through 13. Those who live according to the sinful nature, that is, the flesh, have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. You see right there, it, it might desire to do what's right, but it also makes the decisions, and it can't because sin controls it. I don't care what it desires. For Paul, he was zealous for God. He just couldn't keep the law because the flesh, sin, controlled him, and it's hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Verse 12, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature or the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And so we encounter some truths here. And by the way, the NASB translates it a little better for us in that last part of verse 13, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death. Present tense. We'll come back to that. Putting to death. So we encounter numerous truths here in Romans chapter 8. Number one, it really places a dichotomy, a distinction between those who are under law and under sin as controlled by the flesh and those who have been set free by the spirit of life, and they walk according to the spirit. So you have the flesh life, and you have the spirit life. So in the flesh, those people will mind the things of the flesh. Their focus will be on the things of the flesh, the worldly lifestyle. But those in the Spirit, since they've been set free, their minds are on the things of the Spirit. 
It also goes on and it makes this contrast. Those whose minds, those, the, rather the minds of those in the flesh are enemies of God. Those whose minds are in the, are in the spirit, they experience life and peace. And so he continues to build this contrast. And then he goes on and he says in verse 9, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the flesh, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So here is our present reality. Since the Spirit of life set us free, the Spirit of life lives in us. The Spirit of God lives in you. And, and by saying that, it says Christ lives in you. Christ lives in you. And he does so by his spirit, which, by the way, suggests very clearly that Jesus is God because God takes up his residence in our hearts. Not just some angel or created being as Jehovah's Witnesses would portray Jesus, but God himself. So it says then that our present, the, the, the truth is that by the Spirit, or rather the truth is that the Spirit of God is in us, and consequently, we are in the Spirit. Then it goes on and it says something interesting. And in verse 13, it says that by the Spirit, we are putting to death the misdeeds of the body. The, the things that we do that we would call, well, that's sin. By the Spirit, we are putting this, these practices to death. That is now a picture not just of the truth that we are seeking to align ourselves to, but that is now our reality. You are living as people who by the Spirit, not by your best effort, but by the Spirit, under grace, you are walking after Christ, and you're putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh. Now, I'm going to confess that this sounds very nice. It sounds very religious, and I don't mean that in a negative term, but it can be a little bit, okay, so how is that supposed to help me here? How is, how is all of this nice-sounding teaching, Paul, how is it really supposed to help me because I'm battling with sin? Number one, we learned, yield yourselves to God. But then it talks about, by the Spirit, we are doing this. Not human effort, but by grace. So we've already learned, number one, surrender ourselves to Him. But I want to discover another truth found in this concept of doing this by the Spirit, putting these actions to death by the Spirit. So go with me to Galatians chapter 5. Now, I did say I don't believe that Romans 7, 14 to 25 pictures the Christian's struggle with sin. I don't believe that. There's, there's too many principles that Paul has, is reviewing in those verses that clearly would suggest someone who is not saved, but is rather still a prisoner of sin, under law, under sin, controlled by sin. You can feel the conflict. He wants to do good. And can any of you ever remember as an unbeliever wanting to do good, but then finding, as Paul declares there, I can't. As a matter of fact, the good, the ability to do good is just not there. That is a picture of the unbeliever. But I also follow that by saying that does not mean because even though that's maybe not what Romans 7 is picturing, the Christian struggle, but rather the lost sinner struggle, that struggle for the Christian still exists. And we see that then in Galatians chapter 5. And I want us to glean a few principles from that and close out. So the first thing, the first key that we have to walking in victory, apprehending truth, aligning my reality with truth, is embracing this truth and surrendering it to God. Instead of human effort, and, and I'm going to do the best I can, I am surrendered to God. We need to go one more step. 
And I believe this step is going to be very practical as we flesh it out. It says there in Galatians 5, 16 to 18, follow me. So I say, live by the Spirit. And, and the Greek there literally is walk about in the Spirit. Walk about in the Spirit. It's, it's the same word that we find in Romans 8, walking according to the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. This idea of conflict literally is lying in opposition. The flesh and the spirit lie in opposition to one another. It's, all, it's often translated as adversarial. So the flesh and the spirit, they are adversaries. They are enemies. The spirit of God, God wants to see the flesh crucified regularly and never adhered to. And the flesh wants to undermine the spirit and work against it. And so the two are in conflict. Now, please, I am not somehow conjuring up some Star Wars scene in which it is the, 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 the good force versus the bad force or the light versus the darkness, uh, it is not the yin and the yang, it is not a dualism, what I'm really hoping that the flesh, or rather the spirit wins today, um, this battle of good and evil within us, so that they are somehow of equal force or power. They absolutely, absolutely are not. There is no such thing as a dualism like this in the Christian life. When, when General Wainwright was equipped with that truth, I don't care what battle took place there, he had vested authority and power to be able to march into the commandant's office and not only demand his surrender, but to exercise his leadership in that prison camp and make sure that they were all set free, and that the Japanese laid down their weapons. He had that. There was no comparison. And that is, the com that is there is no comparison between good and evil in the Christian. There is no dualism. But by dualism, in philosophy, they, they mean like an equal, a yin and a yang. You've, you've seen that where it's coupled together. Uh, I, I don't know if I can do it. It's like this, black and white. Um, looks like Nike swooshes together in a circle and, and this, the yin and the yang and the tug of good and evil and light and darkness. And let's, let's see which one wins now. And when you're watching Star Wars, many times you're wondering, okay, which is going to win today? And that's not what we are talking about here. That conflict does not exist here because it is God, on the one hand, the Spirit of God, who broke free into my life and, and, and to gave me life and broke the power of sin against this truly powerless sin that still exists in me. There's no comparison in their power and authority, but they battle one another. And your mind will make choices what to do. It talks about walking in the Spirit. It talks about living by the Spirit. In, in verse 25, it says, let us keep in step. Excuse me, it says, since we live by the Spirit, and that word live is different than in 16, though in the NIV it uses the word live. In 16, it's walk in the Spirit, and in this one, it's really live. Live your life. Zao. It's Zoe girl. You may have heard of that group. That, that's life. That's not bios. That's another Greek word for life, and that's just like physical life. We're talking about this power of God, the spirit of life that now pervades my being and empowers me to live for Jesus that resides in you. Apprehend that power is what he is saying. And he says here, he goes on, uh, let us keep in step with the spirit. We sing a song when, he moved, when the Spirit moves to the left, we move to the left. When he moves to the right, I move to the right. That is based on this verse, believe it or not. It is this concept of me moving as the Spirit moves. The only way to do that is for me to be yielded to this. 
But Paul, he doesn't leave it there, and he gives us this key to being able to do this in the very next chapter. In the very next chapter. How do I do that? This is great. I want to walk in the Spirit, Paul. I want to be able to see the, the flesh crucified and stay dead. I want to see him rendered powerless and exercising no power in my life whatsoever. He has no authority. The flesh has no authority in us. It has power, and there is a key difference there. But God, how, how do I do this thing? How do, I, how do I keep in step? Maybe you've got bad timing. I've seen some people who have terrible timing. They just can't seem to put their hands together when they need to or march as they need to. And, you know, that's the way some of us are, right? Okay, okay, that's the way all of us are when it comes spiritually. It's, and it's hard to keep in step with the Spirit. So how do I do this thing? And so Paul, he, he says, hang on a second. You see someone who's caught in a sin? Chapter 6, verse 1. You who are spiritual, restore him. And so you get this picture, this conflict has won in this follower of Christ. So in meekness and humility and gentleness, go to that person and restore them. And then he shares the principle with us. Look at verse 6 here. Excuse me, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Verse 8, the one who sows to please his sinful nature or the flesh, from that nature will reap what church? destruction, or some versions have corruption. It's death. It's not necessarily just physical death. At the end of your life, you're going to die or eventually lost as a sinner forever and dying in that sin being cast into hell. But day by day, sin just brings death. It brings death in relationships because of hurt. Sin brings death. And so that is if you sow to the flesh, the sinful nature. He says, but the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now, he's not just talking about heaven there. Many times this concept of eternal life is just this power that God places in me, you as a believer, life, the Spirit of life, made me, who was once dead, alive in Christ. He raised me up and breathed new life into me. And it's this type of life. So it's not just heaven, but it is that life that you experience day by day. And he says it this way. So he says, so to the Spirit. So to the Spirit. So, okay. What does that mean? How, how do I do that? How do I live my life sowing? to the Spirit. We just need to take a moment right now and, and kind of unwrap this. Can I ask you this? What are the desires of the Spirit? Why don't you just take a moment right now, just real quickly, and you're in the back of your program here. It says sermon notes on the very back, sermon notes. Just write down right now, very briefly, list a few things, the desires of of the Spirit. Let's say for your life personally, the desires of the Spirit in your life. What are they? What does God desire? What does God want? What beats in God's heart? The desires of the Spirit would be things like you walking in truth. God for some reason, God just seems to love truth. You understand? He, he, he seems to just have this thing about truth. Maybe that's why Jesus is called the way, the truth, and the life. And the Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. I kind of get this idea that God has a thing for truth. And the devil has a thing for lies. He's a deceiver. He will get you to believe lies about who you are, which you ain't, and those are total falsehoods. He is the father of lies. Lying is his native language. That's his first language, church. Whenever he talks to you, it will be in a lie. Trust me. That is just how he is. To get us to trip up, he seeks to have us believe lies. Who we are or who we aren't in Christ. God loves truth. His word is truth. So, that we're kind of discovering, okay, God, there's, there's something here about truth. God, I think, really has a heart for worship, receiving worship, that is, because he is God and you ain't. So you worship him. 
There is something in us as God created us that desperately needs to be submitted to God in that attitude and posture of worship. And in that attitude and posture of prayer and complete and utter and total dependency upon God. This is the desire of God in your life. Worship and prayer. I would also say that there is a desire in God's heart for righteousness and love and peace and joy and goodness and kindness and faithfulness. And you got it right there, Romans, excuse me, Galatians 5, the fruits of the fruit of the Spirit. That's what beats in God's heart. That's what he wants to see formed in you. And if Romans 8 puts it this way, conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we read here in Romans 5 about the fruit of the Spirit. I believe that's a desire in in God's heart. That is what the Spirit desires. I believe prayer is central to the heart of God. I believe that encouraging others, which would be ministry and being encouraged by others, which we might say that's fellowship. I would say serving others. These are the desires of the Spirit of God for each and every one of you. So here is my question. How then do you sow into the Spirit? I tell you what, one of the best ways for me to desire the things of the Spirit and to keep in step with the Spirit is for my heart to long for the things of God. So here's my question. Do you long for these things that I just mentioned here? Do you long for them? What is your heart towards worship? I'm going to be really blunt right now. Can I do that? During worship, do you sit and do you stand in the back and talk? Do you talk amongst your with the, the, the guy next to you and kind of joke back and forth? What would that be like if that happened in heaven and God say, Oh, you in the back? I want you up front because that's where you're really gonna get focused on worshiping me. You, you see, as Christians, I think sometimes we really do not value the things of the Spirit. Maybe we will say we do because, after all, I mean, if if I want to be a good Christian, I guess I'm supposed to worship, and I'm supposed to pray, and I'm supposed to read my Bible, and I'm supposed to witness, and I'm supposed to encourage others. You know, and after a while, it's like, yeah, but don't you say this because these are the things that truly stir in your heart? I've heard it put this way, because in all honesty, prayer, testimony here, prayer can be so inconvenient. And when I preached on a culture of prayer, I I realized that others needed to kind of help me with this. And uh, and Sarah Joy was the first one, and we, we would just be talking in the car, and uh, something would come up, she would just say, let's, Dad, let's just pray. Or she wouldn't even just say, Dad, let's pray. She would just start talking, just not to me, but to God. <laughs> well, Father, in Jesus, right away, I knew that I was not the Father she was talking to. But Father, in Jesus' name, would you please step into this situation for my dad? And would you, and, and she would just go, and she would pray. And that's part of the culture of prayer, and it, because that's what beat in her heart. And that's what stirred in her. And, and church, you see, what I'm saying is when these things stir in us and we start longing for the things that God longs for and we walk in this and we worship and we're not in the back just talking and having a great time, completely removed from what God is wanting us to experience because in worship we experience the surrendered heart and devotion and desperation of God and wanting to lift him up and magnify God because when we do that, we stop magnifying our problems. Amen, church? And so this this is just just some of the dynamics that take place when we're worshiping and when we're praying. I'm not saying that all of you need to come to Tuesday morning prayer. I realize that some of you, 7 o'clock is an ungodly hour. The truth is, though, we need to pray, and we need to pray seriously because this is the air we breathe. Just, I, want to, I want that truth to just kind of dangle there a little bit. This is the air we breathe. Prayer. 
this is my communion. Have you ever tried having a relationship with someone without talking to them? Some of you can do it. Okay, okay. You you can do it. At least you you think you can do it. Uh, The truth is you have to talk. And and my wife was so good at this when we would get, when we were courting especially, because then I'd have to go back home and she would go to her college dorm, blah, blah, blah. And and she would just look forward to it because when we get together, guess what we would do? Well, we wouldn't watch football. We wouldn't go to a movie. We would talk. We would communicate. And we would express things from our heart and pray for one another. And we would have this relationship and it was based on talking of all things. And see, this is prayer. This is communion with God. This is something that, church, I'm going to challenge you. This is what needs to beat in our hearts. Do you want to walk in the Spirit? Then you have to sow into the Spirit. You have to start desiring the things of the Spirit. And you can't desire prayer if you never do it. You can't desire intimacy with God in worship if you never worship. And you you can't embrace truth because God loves truth and I want to love truth too. And you manage to grab your verse a day. Praise God for that verse a day, right? I'm being sarcastic here if you don't notice. And we can live this way. A verse a day keeps the devil away. Oh, great. Now, because here's what I've just experienced, and this is me as a pastor, and maybe I'm alone in this, I don't know, but the, the truth I've discovered is if I'm going to walk in purity, and especially as a young man, just saying, God, I'm, I'm, I'm a new convert in Christ, and ah, how do I deal with these issues of lust? I realized I needed to saturate my mind in Scripture. And I've shared this analogy with you, my friend out in Arizona, and when he would water his lawn, I mean, 120 degrees, that's pretty hot. That soaks up water in the ground like that. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't water his lawn like a sprinklers we see here in, in Florida. He would drown his lawn. We called it, they called it irrigation. And four to six inches of water would flood into his backyard once a week. And that water would sink 12 inches into the ground. And here's what he explained to me, Mike, the... Roots of my grass will only grow as deep as the water penetrates. And if the water can penetrate 12 inches into the ground, that's how deep the roots in my grass are. So as a result, though the top six inches are dry, there's six inches more in which the roots of the grass have grown. And they're still, it's amply watered. And that's why I need so much water once a week, but that's all. I'm not going to water it twice a day, once a day, or or, or every day. I'm not going to do that once a week. Now, I'm not saying read the Word once a week. That's not where I'm going with this. I'm going with this. Saturate your spirit, your mind, your heart with with God's Word, with His truth. Let Let it filter down into and percolate down into who you are. And before you know it, you're going to find that, that wherever you go, the truth of God, not the lies of Satan, the truth of God is there reminding you, follow Jesus, follow Jesus, keep in step with the Spirit here. Here's the longings of the heart of God. There's no way you can know the longings of your spouse without time with them. That's what I'm talking about here, sowing to the Spirit. But if you all day, you're just watching movies and playing games and doing work. We got to do work. Guys, you know, if, you're, if, if you are working for a living, you got to do work. There's nothing wrong with There's nothing wrong with entertainment. But if this is all that you are doing and you are being bombarded by the things of this world, Where are you sowing into the Spirit? So here's where I'm going with this. Let me wrap it up. With our hearts, we can choose to believe the truth. Offer yourselves and every member of your body to God. And with our mind, the desires of who, our personal desires are now being immersed in the desires of the Spirit because we're sowing to the Spirit. 
Maybe it's every two hours. You're at your workstation and you pull out your memory cards and you're just, let me just get a little bit more of the word in. Or you're taking a five-minute fountain, water fountain break, drink, or coffee break, and you're just, you're praying. Or maybe you've been praying for someone and you're going to make a beeline for that person because God's laid a word on your heart you're going to share it with them. But you're sowing, sowing. Throughout your day, you're sowing. You're at work. You're driving by the billboards on I-4 wondering why on earth would they put a perverted poster like that? What, what's going on with our culture? And, but when we're home, it's, I'm getting the word. I, I'm, I'm praying on my way home. And I'm battling this, just this stuff, this download of the world of obnoxious, sensual desires, you name it. And I am choosing to sow into the spirit and not into the flesh. Do you you get where I'm going with this principle? So Paul shares with us in Romans, yield, yield. And yet he also says, but by the spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body, the flesh. That means sowing to the spirit. That means my desires, my mind is set on. See, the, the one who's in the spirit, his mind is set on the things of the spirit, he tells us. Romans 8. That's what I want you to do. That's what I know I need to do. You see, there are pockets of resistance in your life. There's only those two ways in which God says, this is how you do it. This is how the flesh is truly crucified every moment of every day. Offer yourself, surrender to me constantly, and fill yourself constantly sowing into the Spirit. Amen, church? Can you stand with me? Sorry I went late this morning. Um, Long service. It's my excuse. Let's grasp this truth, church. As we pray, just just let God show you. This isn't an opportunity for a guilt trip. Wow, I'm spending one hour in the Word, and and I guess i got to spend two now. I don't know, maybe that might be true for you. But for others, that's, that's not what God is saying. He's just saying, hey, just get in my work, get in my presence, seek me, want me, yearn for me, like all the time. Don't despise worship, don't despise prayer, don't get bored with the word. And if you are, hmm, maybe that's an indicator that you're disconnected. Okay? So God, would you just win our hearts right now? These things of the flesh, we are only going to do it by the Spirit. We're tired of standing in the face of temptation and what can I do now type of approach. God, I just ask you that walking in victory is going to come natural to us like breathing air because we're constantly sowing into the Spirit and we're constantly yielding to Him. So, Father, I just ask you, If our desires are not your desires, change me. Change me, God. That I would love the things of God. It wouldn't be boring things. They wouldn't be put on my Christian, good Christian checklist that I've got to do. That's law. Let it just come so naturally in our hearts because you've won our hearts every moment of every day. And as we do this, God, here's my prayer. Please allow us to walk in the abundance of life that the spirit of life has called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.